Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen, and today we'll be discussing the history and the evolution of Indo-Caribbean music. And joining us today is Peter Manuel. Peter is an ethnomusicologist. He has studied popular and traditional music from India, from the Caribbeans, and from other places. He's got several books out. One of them is titled East Indian Music in the West Indies. So yeah, he's the right guy for this, and we're lucky to have him on. This is a very interesting subject. I don't think I need to add any context for this episode, so let's just move forward. But before we begin, I just want to say that if you're enjoying the podcast and you're enjoying the Instagram page and you want to support, just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. You can be a Patreon. You can do a one-time donation. Uh, Your help goes a long, long way, believe me, and we could definitely use it. Thank you so much, and let's just get started now. Here we go. I mean, there's a ton of stuff on the internet, on YouTube, and so on. But uh, yeah. we can we can talk about that later. Yeah. All right. So, do you wanna do you wanna start? Yeah, sure. Would you like to introduce yourself and your background? Uh, my name is Peter Emanuel. I am a retired, recently retired ethnomusicologist. Um, started out as mostly an India specialist. I started going to India to learn sitar in around 1971 and kept going. And in the early 90s, uh, uh, at which point I was a professor at the City University of New York, I got interested in Indo-Caribbean culture and music. I had several uh, students from Guyana and Trinidad and I started at that point going down to the Caribbean, Guyana, Suriname and mostly Trinidad and um, uh, got very fascinated by the uh, richness of uh, music culture there and pursued it, um, uh, including going back and forth between uh, uh, the Caribbean and um, relevant parts of North India, trying to uh, uh, disentangle things and trace relations and so on, and uh, produced, uh, well, several publications and a few documentary videos. and. Um, a little bit out of touch now. I haven't been to the Caribbean for 10 years now, so I'm not uh, totally up on recent developments, but um, that's basically my background. So slavery ends in, in the 1830s, and then they started bringing in indentured laborers to the Caribbeans. What kind of music did they did they bring with them? Right. Well, uh, most of the people who came... Uh, something like 85% were, they would have been farmers from, and especially young men from the Bhojpuri speaking area, which would now be uh, most of Bihar and the eastern part of Uttar Pradesh in North India. Um, Most of them are going to be uh, illiterate peasants and they would bring with them a repertoire of various kinds of folk songs. also, they would, we, we don't know, but there must have been handfuls of uh, not only skilled amateurs, but perhaps some professional musicians and an awareness of some kinds of urban uh, classical or light classical music um, uh, or people who would have brought at least fragmentary knowledge of those things. And then they uh, took it from there. So this period in Indo-Caribbean history, this kind of music that's being brought and recreated, is is that considered Indo-Caribbean classical music? Well, uh, so they would have brought all sorts of things. Let's say 
narrative ballads, uh, uh, Alha and so on, that's just sung to some simple tune. Um, uh, but maybe someone has a book or has memorized a lot of it and uh, would sit, uh, people would sit around and listen to that. Then there's going to be women's songs in the Bhojpuri language, uh, wedding songs, uh, childbirth songs, um, work songs. Um, then there's going to be uh, devotional songs um, that would be sung at Hindu temples or at various occasions. And those, especially in this, um, in some characteristic Bhojpuri styles, which I uh, uh, did some research on, um, then there would be a demand for special occasions, let's say a wedding where you have some skilled singer, um, perhaps accompanied by a drummer playing tolak, the barrel drum, um, sing songs for entertainment. And so there's a demand for something that is uh, soloistic, has some aspect of sophistication and learning associated with it. And um, people who had some sort of exposure to or fragmentary knowledge of uh, semi-classical music um, and could do their renditions of it, uh, they would be doing that. Obviously we don't, you know, this isn't documented, but uh, uh, we can plausibly reconstruct a lot of it. What were the big differences between that music and the music that was being played in India? Well, uh, so many of the things are going to be pretty much the same. Let's say the women's folk songs, that, that tradition is dying out now, but it's it's still there in Suriname and so on. Um, Chautal, this devotional music that I looked into is pretty much the same as in India, even though there's no contact with that region since 1917. As for the local classical music, as it came to be known, uh, when I started going down in the early 90s, this was what I was particularly interested in because they had um, you know, these song types named Tumri and Tilana and um, uh, uh, Drupad, names that correspond to North Indian classical uh, uh, um, uh, genres. Uh, but then I quickly found that they were very different. And uh, so I became intrigued by how these, how these things evolved. Um, uh, they would be in some respects simpler. They're not going to be based on complex rags like North Indian classical music is where you have a system of, uh, well, perhaps 40 or 50 rags that are common and well-known and basically uh, whether it's vocal music or instrumental music, it's focused on improvised uh, elaboration and development of those rods. Okay, that kind of knowledge the, uh, the, the Indo-Caribbeans would not have had. Instead, they had song texts, which they brought with them or got from books um, that were imported from India. And um, some uh, perhaps jumbled understanding of how these uh, things were sung in India, and then they started doing it in their own way, um, which someone from India might scoff at. Hmm. Uh, but these it evolved into a system, and these forms acquired their own beauty and sophistication and legitimacy, and that was very uh, striking to me. So the part that in, in, in India, in Indian classical music, it's it's all written down, it's archived, there's very a lot of theory behind it and this and that. That part doesn't get to the Caribbeans. So this is basically just an oral tradition that's passed down from generation to generation in, in the Caribbeans? Uh, yes, except that uh, 
they relied on song books that had the words to songs. And these started to be published in India in great numbers in the mid 1800s. They wouldn't be of that much interest to classical musicians in India because it's really a more exposition of the rag and not so much the song text. But in the Caribbean, they were determined to uh, cultivate and cling to in their own way, whatever they could from India. So they got copies of these books, some of which are very interesting to someone like me, old books that you don't find in India anymore, but people hoard them and collect them. So uh, let's say they have a book and it has uh, a, a, a song that's labeled a tumri. Okay, tumri is a kind of light classical song in North Indian uh, musical system. Um, uh, so the text might be the same or similar as what might be sung in India, um, but then the way they started singing it somehow, and it's a little bit enigmatic, uh, but over the course of a couple of generations became something quite different. So that now, for example, there is a very specific Trinidadian way of singing a tumri, which is very fixed, and if you don't do it right, uh, you know, the knowledgeable people will will criticize you, say you don't know what you're doing. Um, but uh, it's very different from a North Indian tumri. Um, it's got its own flavor and its own style. A bit more rhythmically oriented, not a lot of uh, improvisation in rag. Um, uh, a bit more word oriented, uh, but it's got its own character. Well, what, when I think of Indian classical music, you know, the sitar pops up in my head. How come the sitar did not popularize in the Caribbeans? There would be sitars in the cities uh, in the Bhojpur region, uh, uh, Lucknow, Patna, uh, Banaras, Lucknow a little bit to the west there. But um, again, those musicians would be unlikely to come. And uh, what would be more popular in for that sort of entertainment in the Caribbean is going to be vocal songs with words that people could follow in Hindi. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about tasa drumming, which is a different thing, but um, so something like sitar, which is really instrumental, um, you want accompaniment to a vocal song. Uh, theoretically, a sitar could do that, but sitar is difficult. It's hard to play. They're hard to get. They cost money. It's heavy. Uh, it's, it, 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 um, uh, you're stuck with the one key that the sitar is in. So once the harmoniums started to be available, uh, I'm not a, a lover of the harmonium, but it was just a much more practical accompaniment instrument. So that took- What is the harmonium? Yeah, what is the harmonium? Um, originally it was a pedal instrument, uh, but then when it uh, became popular in India, and oh, I should know this, but it's going to be in the probably late 1800s, unless someone is going to correct me, um, when it really became more widespread. It's like a rectangular thing about the size of a big bread box. Um, uh, and it has a keyboard like a piano and mm. you pump it with, it's got a little bellows like an accordion. So it's very much like an accordion, except you plop it on the ground, you sit uh, facing it, you uh, pump it, the bellows with your left hand and play. Uh, so a singer can accompany himself or herself with it if you get some facility with it. And even from the time we get records in North India, you know, around 1900, the harmonium is being widely used there. It's uh, 
one could say not well suited to Indian music, um, except that it's easy and not too expensive. So the indentured labor stopped being brought to the Caribbeans around 1918, 1917. After that, they kind of have very little connection with India. So now what happens to the music then? And also you have different uh, regions. You have Fiji and you have Guyana, you have Trinidad. Do the musicians in these specific regions kind of have interaction with each other or do they just do their own thing? Yes, well, it's complicated, but uh, yeah, so 1917, the indentureship program ends, the ships stop coming uh, in places like, well, in the Caribbean and in Fiji, you get certain sorts of contact from India, uh, holy men, Hindus coming, uh, pundits, um, uh, books being imported, records of things like Kowali and so on. And uh, the Indo-Caribbeans and also Fijians are very interested in these things and maintaining contact with them. But in the meantime, that's not enough to sustain a musical tradition, even if they try to copy the records. But they had by this time their own musical traditions um, brought from India. Uh, some of which they maintained very faithfully. I mean, Chowtal is kind of devotional song that they sing, especially uh, during holy season in the spring. Um, and they do that in Trinidad, Guyana, Suriname, Fiji, uh, and in the uh, Bhojpuri region of India, and some of the identical songs sung in the same way. So that is an interesting uh, sort of... Uh, uh, case where they were able to maintain a tradition just as it came from India. And in fact, we can reconstruct this 19th century version of how it was sung in India by looking at, you know, these Fijians and Trinidadians who've had no contact with each other. Meanwhile, then there's also something like what in Trinidad came to be called local classical music that was taking shape. And then they're completely cut off from India. Um, uh, after 1917, but they want to perpetuate it as best they can, but somehow over the generations it evolves into a distinct system. So now there's, it's safe to say there's no contact between the Caribbean and Fiji. Um, uh, so it's very striking when we see th things that are similar there, but we also notice differences. Meanwhile, you have Guyana, Trinidad, uh, Suriname, smaller groups in Jamaica and Martinique who have their own traditions, but they're really out of the out of the loop. Guyana and Trinidad, certain sorts of occasional contact. Guyana and Suriname, which are adjacent, certain sorts of contact, but in many ways they are on their own. And um, it's like these seeds that were brought from India and planted and then they uh, develop in different ways. Sometimes you get the same flowers. Sometimes it mutates into something completely different. So if someone, if someone wants to learn Indo-Caribbean classical music, do they, do they go to their elders or do they go and take a flight to India and study with someone there? <laughs> well, if you want to learn Indo-Caribbean Indo classical music, let's say Trinidad-style singing, uh, there's no sense going to India because uh, it's not there. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, traditionally, you know someone who performs it, um, whether you're learning the tolak playing, that is the drumming or the singing, perhaps let's say you're a singer, uh, you are singing 
bhajans, you know, devotional songs, maybe from childhood, but you hear some people at weddings and so on who are doing this classical style and you probably don't learn from them in a traditional, you know, discipular sense, but uh, you can imitate them. You get your hand on a book of song texts. Uh, you can listen to some records. That's how people would learn. Uh, nowadays, uh, it's nice to see um, that people are making use of the internet, YouTube. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube now, including, you know, here's how to play Doluk for this kind of song. I mean, this is it's great to see this. I, uh, this would be a recent development. I, I haven't been following it really closely since around 2010, at which point that was just getting started. But now I'm happy to see, you know, you have a couple of enthusiasts who are posting a lot of stuff on the internet and, and that would certainly be a way you could learn. So, uh, you know, speaking of Dolak, I was looking at this instrument and I've never seen this before. Can you, can you give us a history of that instrument and what it is? Dolak is the most common, you could say, folk drum throughout North India. A barrel drum with one, the uh, one side is pretty low, bong, and the other side is uh, uh, tuned higher and it has a, 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 a call it a lot of, what is it made of, wheat paste on it uh, that gives it a ringing sound. Yeah. So, uh, that is played throughout North India and all sorts of different genres. You can get a nice range of effects on it. It's a bit in structure, you might say, like a tabla, which is two drums, uh, but the tolik is just one, but it's got two and a high one. And with the low one, you can get various effects by you know, uh, uh, manipulating the drum head with your wrist as you hit it. So, uh, yeah, that's from India, gets picked up in the Caribbean and cultivated with great uh, skill. So there'd be lots of people in the Caribbean who play it and play it very well in Guyana and Trinidad. Uh, you know, there's one lying around the house, um, uh, maybe even the women, the women folk bong on it on occasion when they're singing their uh, wedding songs. But uh, then at the bhajan sessions, uh, people will, guys will learn to play it and some of them get very good. Um, and then that also becomes the basic accompaniment drum in local classical music and the Dola players are fantastic. And uh, I hate to make comparisons, but uh, the Trinidadian and Guyanese Dola players cultivate, a, a lot of them are real kind of virtuosity that you don't hear much in India. Uh, you know, virtuosity in Indian music, there's plenty of it, but it would be more tabla, sitar, vocal music and so on, not so much the Dola. So, um... When the indentured laborers were coming, there was already a community there, Afro-Caribbeans, and they had their own music and their own culture. How did the Afro-Caribbean culture influence the Indo-Caribbean culture? Yes. Well, this is a big question. Um, probably in the first couple of generations, let's say the, the second half of the 1800s, the Indians are mostly going to be on the plantations. Uh, then if they can... Uh, uh, graduate from the plantations to their own uh, communities. They're going to be in Indian dominated villages, often not having a lot of contact with the Afro-Caribbeans. And in many cases, it seems they were more interested in perpetuating their own musical traditions. Um, uh, and of course, we don't know all that much about what the Afro-Caribbean traditions were 
in the 19th century in Guyana and Trinidad. You know, Calypso is not going to exist then, but there would be um, uh, some neo-African traditions, but the British are increasingly trying to stamp those out. Uh, carnival drumming traditions, again, repressed by the British. Um, the most distinctive Indo-Caribbean forms really don't have a lot of inf influence from the Afro-Caribbean ones. Um, uh, whether it's local classical music or women's wedding songs or Hindu devotional songs, tasa drumming, which is another interest of mine. They, they adopted a few rhythms, but on the whole, it's pretty much uh, Indo-Caribbean. Now, of course, you could have some East Indians maybe uh, uh, becoming Christians and uh, singing Christian hymns and so on in church, but they're going to be a very small minority. What is chutney music? What is the history and everything behind that? Um, well, it, this is something that would come from women's songs, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the Bojpuri region, um, and uh, quintessentially songs that during a Hindu wedding, perhaps in the village in you know Bihar or whatever, um, at certain points women would sing songs and no men would be present, <clears throat> which means that the women could uh, dance around. Uh, you know, this, we're talking about a, a conservative society, men and women don't dance together, but women can dance and do dance uh, amongst themselves, whether in some stuffy room in the, in the, uh, in the village or out in the field or whatever. Uh, and sometimes the songs could be bawdy. Uh, they might pick up an eggplant and clown around with that and things like that. Um, but lively, fast, danceable songs, simple rhythm, Bojpuri lyrics. Okay, so this tradition goes to the Caribbean, Trinidad, Guyana, Suriname. And it seems to be that in Trinidad, there were these gradual phases of this uh, music and dance literally coming out of the closet. Um, and I was able to reconstruct some of this from my you know, elder informants. Maybe in the 1960s, um, you have a Hindu wedding and the women are saying, uh, whether explicitly or not, why do we have to just dance in this hot stuffy room? Can't we just dance out in the courtyard? And yes, there are men there, but they're all friends and family. So uh, we, it, it doesn't have to be regarded as disgraceful, even if some uh, fuddy-duddies did regard it. So it comes out into the courtyard in the wedding. And now I've, I've seen this. I mean, this is very typical at Hindu wedding. And at some point it starts to be called chutney, um, which of course is an Indian word, meaning the condiment. Uh, a word that might, well, it, it implies hot and spicy. Um, and some of the songs and dances could be very spicy and ribald. Uh, but since they came out of this uh, 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 women's tradition, um, well, they had their own kind of history. Uh, then the next step comes in the 80s when uh, they start in Trinidad holding public dances. You pay a little bit and there's a little group uh, providing music and men and women dance and drink and have fun. And this was very controversial in Indian society, Indo-Caribbean, Indo-Trinidadian society with conservatives saying, oh, this is terrible. It's okay for men to get drunk and dance and be lewd, but women are not supposed to do that. And other women saying, uh, that's not fair. <laughs> and we like to dance and have fun. And even if sometimes it gets a little wild, um, 
so that was the big development in the 80s. And when I was started to go in the early 90s, this controversy was still raging. Uh, but basically, it has become accepted. Um, it, and then it, it uh, sort of syncretized with soca, that is to say, using a typical soca rhythm. What is, what is soca? Soca is a, the dance music of Trinidad, created and popularized since the late 70s and 80s. By Afro-Caribbeans. Uh, yes. Uh, and it, you could say, is distinguished by its rhythm. You know, it's faster than reggae, for example. Um, and then light, simple tunes, um, and people dance to it at carnival and at clubs and so on. So that rhythm actually kind of fits with uh, a, uh, a typical chutney rhythm. Uh, sort of like that, or a little bit faster. So, so chutney soca implies using that soca rhythm, which might be produced by a synthesizer or whatever, and uh, singing in English, because now people don't know Hindi so much, but retaining something of the Indian flavor. And then the Indians are holding uh, dances and competitions for it, and even some Afro-Trinidadians are joining, uh, they want to make money or whatever, and it became its own sort of addition to the Trinidadian music scene. Um, and it's still around, of course. I don't follow the scene really closely. Uh, it's dance music and uh, not something that I'm really a part of. Um, I don't know if it's, it was a big rage in the 90s. It may have declined a little bit since, but it's certainly around. What happened to what happened to uh, Indian uh, Indo-Caribbean classical music since you know the language is dying and chutney's kind of taken over is it slowly losing it Yeah well it had a real vitality among people who liked it uh in the period when people knew Hindi and by the time we get to the 60s 70s there's a lot of old people who whether they are fluent in conversing or not, they understand the words, they appreciate it, they find meaning in it. Um, and I met, well, even when I started doing my research in the early 90s, there were some people who had that kind of knowledge, but they were fewer and fewer, and you hardly meet anyone except for some octogenarian back then, and they'd be all dead now, who could actually speak Hindi. Um, so the language loss has been uh, very harmful to it. However, um, it's hanging in there and I'm happy to see um, uh, in Trinidad, there's, uh, you know, especially, uh, it, of course, the whole performance scene has been also impacted by COVID, which like everywhere else. Um, but in spite of that, I'm seeing on the internet and several young people who are singing it well, um, uh, it's going to have to survive the language loss, but sometimes music forms uh, are able to do that. Um, so it's probably not going to be like the good old days, but uh, if you get more sort of appreciation of it um, on the part of Indo-Trinidadians, which is something that, you know, I, I would like to have contributed to, I think Indo-Trinidadians should recognize this is, you know, they've created a, a jewel. It's a, a beautiful kind of music. It's totally Trinidadian. Um, and uh, so it's kind of seems to be hanging in there. When I was researching Indo-Caribbean music history, the name Alan Lomax kept popping up. Can you tell me who he is and what's, what is his significance to this research? 
<laughs> well, he was an ethnomusicologist. Uh, he must have died, oh, 10 years ago or so. Um, uh, he wrote some things uh, which uh, were mixed um, in, in terms of their reception by other scholars. He made a few uh, documentary videos, which were very nice. And I think perhaps his greatest contribution was in the Starting in the early 60s, he tramped around various places, including the Caribbean, but also, you know, Italy and Spain and all, all kinds of places and did a lot of recording, um, uh, nicely documenting what he recorded. He was a very personable, congenial guy, very good at uh, getting accepted by whoever he was working with. And um, uh, at that point, you know, obviously recording technology records had been around a long time, but it was amazing, you know, there was no recordings of things like Indo-Caribbean traditional music or even Italian, you know, folk songs that people in some uh, valley sing and they've got their own language and um, uh, uh, in the next uh, uh, valley, they're speaking a different language and the songs are unintelligible and so on. So anyhow, back to the indo -Crib. He actually did the first ethnographic recordings of, um, uh, he had a good informant. I think it was uh, a Trinidadian scholar, Joe Elder, who took him around. Okay, let's go hear this. Now let's go hear that. And so he recorded, did a lot of recordings of Afro-Trinidadian and Indo-Trinidadian music. And those are the earliest ones. And whether it's some, you know, work song or women singing or tassa drumming or local classical music. And those are really interesting to me because you can see that, okay, this system that they've got now in tassa drumming and local classical music, in, as of Lomax's time, early 60s, it was basically in place. Um, uh, so, uh, he didn't write things about it, but he did these recordings and good field notes and so on. Um, and that stuff is around. Uh, I don't know if it's on the internet, but might be. Um, you know, if someone wants to learn more about Indian Indo-Caribbean classical music, do you have any music recommendations that they could listen to? Well, there's a ton of stuff on the internet. Um, is there a specific musician? Uh I would, a good one that I had noticed recently um, of the Trinidad Tumri style, which I think is one of the most beautiful and um, uh, unique uh, ways of singing that they've invented. Uh, there's a nice cut by Jairam Dindial. He's a guy, he must be, I don't know, 45 or 50 and very good singer. Um, that would be J-A-I-R-A-M, last name D-I-N-D-I-A-L. And his sister, uh, Rasika, is also a fine singer. And you, you know, plug in their names. You put in J. Ram Dindial Tumri, you'll get a nice, a nice cut by him. Uh, then I myself made some documentary videos. I made one called, <laughs> um, I think it's called Tan Singing of Guyana, of Trinidad and Guyana. Uh, I would say it's in terms of cinematographic uh, quality, it's not, uh, a masterpiece, but it has lots of footage and interviews and so on, and really tries to reconstruct uh, a lot of things. Um, uh, those would be some sources for local classical music, but there's a lot on the internet now. And if you put in Jairam Dindial Tumri, you'll get a bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, then I made another documentary video about um, 
covering some other folk genres and also tassa drumming, which is a, 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 an amazing art. And that one is called Tassa Thunder, T-A-S-S-A, Thunder. This is all on YouTube? They're all on YouTube and Vimeo. Perfect. Uh, you know, we were talking about we we're talking about music a lot, but what about dance? You know, did dance come from India too, and then they were doing the classical Indian dances, and then did that evolve also? Yes, uh, I don't think there's much evidence of classical Indian dance coming, except in recent decades. Uh, you might have some, you know, Bharatanatyam or Kathak dancer setting up, or more like some young man or woman goes to India for a year or so and learns these forms and then goes back to Trinidad and starts teaching them. Uh, but, you know, Indian, North Indian classical music and dance have a little presence there in a place like Trinidad, not to mention in New York City where uh, people can cult, uh, can study that. But um, instead what they brought was their own Bhojpuri women's style of dancing, uh, which is very beautiful and graceful. And you see uh, it might be some uh, you know, rotund uh, elderly uh, auntie doing it, but very uh, beautiful to watch. Um, uh, and you see people doing that. A lot of the good chutney dancers, and it's especially the women and sometimes the older women who are the best dancers uh, and at weddings, uh, it's, it's lovely. Um, then there are also people who do film style dance. Um, I uh, myself uh, find the, the, the traditional style dancing much more, uh, attractive to watch. And um, uh, you might say that um, in the Caribbean, among the Indo-Caribbeans, they've lost a lot of the social inhibitions that prevent lower class people, especially in the villages from dancing. You know, in a village in India, uh, what occasions do women have to dance? Well, it might be a Hindu wedding. And again, only in a, a sexually uh, segregated situation. Um, uh, cities people can there may be more occasions but in the in village life you know they men and women would not dance together uh social dancing is very circumscribed um but in trinidad and guyana and the secondary diaspora whether it's miami or new york city or toronto people have put aside such inhibitions there are clubs they dance together at all sorts of occasions and and i would say they um a lot of indo trinidad indo caribbean people love to dance they'll dance at the drop of a hat uh, you know, a, a religious service, a budget session can turn into a dance that the old women get up and dance. And it's delightful to see. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the questions I have to ask you. Is there anything you want to add in or anything you want to talk about that you think is interesting? Well, one of the themes that I tried to uh, explore uh, in Trinidad and Guyana, there's been a lot of argument about national culture and how Indians fit into that and this traditional idea, especially in Trinidad, that uh, it was Afro-Trinidadian so-called Creole culture, uh, steel band, carnival, calypso, this was the national culture and the Indians didn't really fit in because they went on singing their old songs from India and then in the Indian language, which no one else could understand and even they themselves didn't understand it. and. Um, then in the 90s, this was a big issue, uh, uh, Caribbean uh, Indians coming more into the mainstream economically, politically, um, and culturally, and a lot of arguments about what the uh, nature of uh, national culture was supposed to be. And very often people arguing about this in um, uh, reference to music. 
Um, and uh, it was interesting to follow this. Uh, you know, the Afro Trinidadians or Guyanese saying, well, why should we have to, you know, especially when the only radio is state run radio and state run TV, we don't want to listen to your Indian songs and your funny language. Uh, you know, this is not, we, we Trinidadians, we Afro Trinidadians created Trinidad, we created Calypso and Carnival and Steel Band. And that's why we are the real Trinidadians. You people are just, you know, uh, you've got one foot in India. You're not really Trinidadians like us. And then the Indo Trinidadians saying, well, no, uh, it's true that we retain our, uh, you know, ties to Indian. We're proud to be Indian. We've retained a lot. You've lost contact with Africa. That's your problem. Um, but we were born here. Our parents are born here. Our grandparents are born here. Uh, in many cases, yeah. uh, great great grandparents, maybe not. But um, and gradually, you had a new uh, paradigm of multiculturalism coming in, and music really being a very prominent part of this. Um, uh, and something that I've, you know, it's not my position to argue what shape, you know, Trinidadian or Guyanese national identity should be, but you could certainly make the case that something like local classical music and Tassa, these were created in Trinidad. Yeah, the seeds, the roots came from India, but the Trinidadians put them together in their own way, and they're not creolized. Uh, they're 100% Trinidadian, 100% Indian, so it makes more sense to have a paradigm of multiculturalism rather than uh, uh, a, a kind of creolization model that ends up excluding some people. So that was a theme that I pursued in some of my writing. What happened with the outcome of that nowadays after, after 2000, after 90s well, are over? I mean, now that English has emerged and, and has become more of a main language, I'm, I'm sure it must have brought people together. Well, whether it brought them together or not, um, I think there is a recognition and an acceptance on the part of most Afro-Trinidadians, let's say, or Guyanese, that the Indians, they're half the population, they've got their culture, um, they've got their political parties, and, um, you know, there are antagonisms in some ways, but no one can go on saying that Trinidadian culture is Calypso Carnival and Steel Band and everyone else has to do that. Um, I think it's, there's now a recognition that um, it has yeah. to be a multicultural society and music has played a big role in that. Yeah, very cool. Anything else you wanna add? This is really cool. This is really dope. Uh, if anyone's interested in further exploring these things, I mean, I mentioned my videos that are on YouTube and, and Vimeo, and of course there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. You have um, books too. Now, and I have a couple books, uh, which, you know, you plug in my name, they will pop up. Uh, the, the more recent one is called Tales, Tunes, and Tassa Drums, um, Retention and Invention in Indo-Caribbean Music. Um, and uh, then, of course, other people have also written uh, some things on it, uh, on various aspects of music and culture there. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll release this this week and uh, you can check it out. Good. Well, I want to listen to some of the other, I mean, I was just uh, looking at some of the different topics you've done and it looks great. I, I mostly listen to podcasts when I drive uh, and I'll be doing some driving in the next couple of days. So I'll start checking these out. Awesome. I hope you like it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a good, good one. Luck. Take care.